All right. In order to kind of help us to dive into this building for God's kingdom today, we're going to look at the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 13, verses 31 through 32. It's a parable that my guess is most of us are somewhat familiar with. And here it is. Jesus is writing this. Jesus says, put before them another parable. The kingdom of heaven, he said, is like a mustard seed that someone took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all the seeds, but when it has grown, it is the greatest of shrubs and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. Sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God, and let us pray. God, we gather this morning on this slick, icy day, and I thank you for the protection of those who have arrived here this morning. We pray for all those, Lord, who are out and about today, that you would keep them safe. And we pray, Lord, that as we come together this morning, that you would open up our eyes and our ears and our hearts to what you would have to say to us. And I pray, Lord, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts will be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen and amen. So if you were here last week, you do know that we started kind of our new series of building for God's kingdom. And what I said last week was that sometimes it's a little difficult to talk about God's kingdom because we don't know exactly what we mean. And there's lots of different people who have lots of different thoughts on what the kingdom of God looks like. But as, I, as we said, mostly what we're going to be doing is looking at what the world looked like when it was created by God and what God desired for it to be. We, we can see it in the sense of how Jesus acted. Obviously, Jesus was ushering in the kingdom. And so how did he treat others? What did that look like? And then, of course, scripture that points to what's going to happen when Jesus returns and what exactly the world will look like then. And so we, uh, we have a sense as we begin to look at those things that it's a world of love and justice and mercy, of celebration and joy, uh, of Sabbath, of rest and of work. Uh, and so we will uh, continue to look at that in the days ahead. But that's kind of what we're kind of engaging in as we think about what it means to build for God's kingdom. Now, one of the things that makes it also somewhat difficult is in one sense, we already believe that God's kingdom is here. If God's kingdom means at its very root, the fact that Jesus is in control, that he reigns, R-E-I-G-N-S, then we believe that God is already in control. And yet, when we look around at the world around us, we have to be honest in saying it doesn't always seem that that is the case. And so this is what theologians call the now but the not yet. There's a sense of God's kingdom, but it isn't yet fully visible. And it won't be yet fully visible until Jesus returns. And so a part of our role is to try to live into and make visible what is not yet visible to most in our world. And so that's a part of our call. But last week, as I mentioned, we talked about the fact that sometimes it can be hard to know exactly what role we play. I mean, if this is God's kingdom, then clearly God is the one who was going to bring this to fruition. But does that mean that we should do nothing? Well, we said no. When you look at 1 Corinthians 15, as we did, it says that nothing you do will be in vain. 
right? And so we talked a little bit about the goose chaser. And if you weren't here last week, I'm not going to describe it to you, but you can look it up or, I don't know, look it up. You can listen to it um, or ask somebody. Uh, And so we talked about the fact that oftentimes the things we do, we may not see it then, but we trust that somehow God is going to use that for his glory. And I wanted to bring that up because I think that there is a danger when we talk about the kingdom of God of most folks thinking that they don't really have much to offer when it comes to that particular kingdom. Now, that's not the only danger when it comes to talking about God's kingdom and what does that look like. And I wanted us to look a little bit at another danger today when it comes to, um, when it comes to building for God's kingdom. And that's this, that with great frequency, it is very easy when we hear about the kingdom of God to begin to look at the kingdom of God through the lens of the kingdom, whatever that is, in which we currently live. So here's kind of what I mean. I have a feeling that whenever the disciples heard Jesus talk about the kingdom of God, that what they immediately began to think about when they thought of kingdom was the kingdom of the Roman Empire, right? And this was a remarkable remarkable kingdom. There had never really been much of a kingdom like this before. I mean, it was powerful. It was fast. It was efficient. It was militaristic. It was awe-inspiring, right? I mean, this was an impressive kingdom. And so whenever the disciples are hearing Jesus talk about the coming kingdom and what his kingdom is going to be, that's what they were thinking of. And throughout the, the, the time when Jesus is with his disciples, you can see them kind of grappling with that. Who is it? It's James and John, I think, who, who say to Jesus, Jesus, can we sit at your at your right and your left, right? Can we, right? Because there's this sense of that's what it looks like to be in a kingdom. There he is, and we get to sit at his right and his left. And throughout, they're always ready for Jesus to come riding in and changing everything. In fact, in Acts 1, we see there the early church, right? Um, all of a sudden, they're asking Jesus after his resurrection, is this the time when your kingdom is going to come? In other words, is this the the time when you are finally in some incredible way are going to ride into Jerusalem as Jesus Christ superstar would put it and you are going to take over in some incredible awe-inducing powerful way is this when it's finally going to happen that's what the disciples were thinking about when Jesus started talking about his coming kingdom however Jesus, as we know, was not thinking about a kingdom quite like that, was he? Which is why I think he comes up with this parable. Jesus is talking about what the kingdom is going to look like. And he says, well, it's going to look a little bit like a seed that then becomes kind of a, 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 this, kind of, this, this kind of tall mustard uh, shrub, really. And the disciples, of course, I can see them just kind of thinking... What does that mean exactly? And what Jesus is trying to tell them, one of the things by using this analogy, is that you can't necessarily judge a kingdom by its cover. You can't necessarily judge a kingdom by what it actually looks like right then. I was talking to a a couple of staff members this week, and one of them brought up the fact, the reality that 
you know, Jesus was telling the disciples continually, go out there and, and tell people that the kingdom of God is near. And maybe we don't think about it that much, but can you imagine you, you go out to a group of people and you say, hey, the kingdom of God is near. And what would you do if you were one of those people to whom you were hearing this? Really? Because I got to tell you, I don't see any horses and I don't see any military and I don't see anyone that looks like a king and I don't see a bunch of people bowing down and I don't see anyone that seems all that powerful or wealthy. What are you talking about? And can you imagine the disciples, you know, at that point they're thinking, man, we should have asked Jesus a couple of more questions about what he meant by this. Because when you look at it, it doesn't look at all like the kingdom of God is near at all. At least nothing like what they would have thought about when it came to the kingdom. What Jesus is saying is that it's going to oftentimes be something, the kingdom, that looks kind of small and doesn't look necessarily all that exciting or awe-inspiring or powerful. And that was hard for the disciples to understand. Of course, the other thing about the analogy is that it also means that at the end of the day, you probably know this about plants. I certainly know this. You cannot make them grow. Right? You can't control their growth. You can water, you can fertilize, you can put it in sun. But at the end of the day, those things can still either grow or die. And so there was a sense, of course, in which they had absolutely no control over whether or not the kingdom was really going to begin to blossom in their midst. They had to let go of that control. And not only that, of course... But the reality is that it had to kind of grow and that those things are slow. And they're not always efficient. Now, the mustard shrub immediately, amongst plants, is a fairly fast-growing plant. But that said, it's still a... This is not a trick question. It's still a plant, right? It's still a shrub, right? Which means they still have to grow, which means it's still going to be slower than what we are going to want. It's not going to be as efficient as if you could just build something yourself. You can do it just like that. You still have to kind of wait for it. And I, what I picture is, as I picture Jesus, right, as he's looking out and he's thinking about, he sees a field perhaps of mustard shrubs and he's like, oh, he's like, you know what, the, the, the kingdom is kind of like this. And then I, I see a few kind of Roman kind of excavators, if you will, over here. And they're like, hey, you see that whole row over there of mustard shrubs? I'm pretty sure that we could lay down a road right there, right on top of it. Why? Because the kingdom, especially the Roman kingdom, guess what they were really? They were super fast and they were super efficient. You've heard of Roman roads. There are still Roman roads all around today even. It was allow the military to move quickly. It allowed mail to move quickly. It allowed people to move quickly. The Roman Empire was fast and efficient and it was under their control. But the kingdom that God was talking about was slow and required patience and was completely out of their control. You see, it was hard for the disciples to really understand what the kingdom actually looks like. 
Tom Long actually suggests that whenever it is that Jesus is telling them this parable, that more than likely he had a twinkle in his eye. Now we hear this so often, I think. We probably have heard the parable that it just seems like, oh yeah, yeah, and we just kind of look over. But just imagine, imagine you, there you are, you're a disciple And you're talking, Jesus is talking to you about what the coming kingdom is going to look like. And you're really excited. And you think, oh, it's going to be amazing. And you've been oppressed. And you think there's no hope. But yet you have Jesus who you think is the king and who is going to take over everything. And all of a sudden, Jesus says, oh, you want to know what the kingdom of God is like? And everyone's like, oh, tell us. And he says, okay, okay, I got it, I got it, I got it. And they're like, this is going to be great. And he said, you know, it's like a seed. And they're like, okay, this is going to be good. And it grows up, oh my goodness, to be a mustard shrub. Seriously, Jesus, that's the best you can come up with? Because here's the thing. I don't care how much bigger it is and when it's a seed, at the end of the day, you know what it is? A shrub. What, if you're a disciple, what you want to hear is that it's like a cedar of Lebanon. I had to keep telling myself, don't say Lebanon. Lebanon. Right? That's what you want. Something that is majestic and tall and strong and powerful. At the end of the day, a mustard shrub is still just a shrub. And if you're following somebody who is supposed to be your leader and says, don't worry, whenever we take over, you don't want them to say it's going to look like a shrub. It's incredibly ordinary. In fact, many would say that the mustard shrub is actually a weed. And you don't necessarily even want it growing in your yard. That it's very ordinary. It's very average. It's not all that special or unique. The Romans were more than happy to tell you just how extraordinary and unique and powerful they were. Right, you know this, when they went back into Rome and they began to kind of build things after they had attacked slaves, they would have the slaves go. And then they, as, they, as they would build things, the slaves would put their, their, something that, that kind of was the symbol for their own country up on something as a way of saying, you, we have been conquered by Rome. Rome wanted you to know how special and unique and powerful they were. And all of a sudden, Jesus says, oh, you think that's good. Don't worry about it. My kingdom's going to be like a mustard shrub. I hope that you get a sense of how anticlimactic that is. It's a sense of kind of being somewhat insignificant, small, slow, efficient, not all that extraordinary at all. And yet, what we have to admit is that the thing that Jesus started 2,000 years ago It has actually outlasted the Roman Empire. So that even though it seems small and inefficient and not all that awe-inspiring and not all that powerful and all, uh, all that extraordinary, it seemed to have endured long past when the Roman Empire, the kingdom of their day, 
were ruling over most of the world. So the question then, as I was thinking about it this week, was this. What exactly, if it is a part of most of the disciples of Jesus, including up to this day, I would suggest, a part of our temptation when we think about the kingdom of God is to think about it in terms of the kingdom that we live in. Perhaps it would be wise for us to reflect on the ways in which the kingdoms of which we are a part shape how we understand oftentimes the kingdom of God and whether or not we allow the mustard shrub to be the lens rather than the kingdom of this world. Here's what I mean. There's lots of examples that I could give as far as how the kingdom of this world rules and the ways in which it very easily can begin to skew how we see the kingdom of God and what it is supposed to look like. Let me, let me get up, this is about my quarterly soapbox, on one of those kingdoms. It's the kingdom, just as an example, of Facebook. Okay? So, Facebook. Lots of great things about Facebook. Like one or two. But there, it does do some good things. But I just want you to pay attention to this, if you will. Facebook, something that can certainly allow you to engage with people, to, 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 to meet people or to see people that you hadn't seen in a long time, at least, on, uh, at least on your computer or your iPad or your phone, whatever it may be. That It can certainly cultivate relationships in a certain way. There is a guy, though, named Benjamin Glasser. Maybe you've heard of him. And, and he noticed that while he went into there with these kind of great and noble thoughts when it came to Facebook, and, and again, it did some good things, he started being more reflective, as I would suggest most of us should be. And, and one of the things, I want you to read this, one of the things that he says is this, as he reflected on Facebook, he said, as a regular user of Facebook, I continually find myself being enticed by its endless use of numbers. How many likes did my photos get today? What's my friend count? How much did people like my status? And I focus on these quantifications, he says, watching for the counts of responses rather than the responses themselves or waiting or number of friend requests to appear rather than looking for meaningful connections. I believe the number told me something about myself, whether I was important that day. What I find intriguing about that is that Benjamin Glasser says, I went into this trying to connect and yet, interestingly enough, the longer I was in there, the more I began to realize that what started with trying to be in relationship quickly jumped to how many numbers, how popular it was, and what kind of impact what I was posting was having. So that all of a sudden, the relationships began to take a back seat to how popular it was. And we've talked about the fact that things are released in our, in our, in our, in our blood whenever we begin to see those particular numbers going up and all of a sudden his lens began to be skewed. 
attitude towards wanting more, focusing more on what kind of numbers and how you could put metrics to it than actually just whether or not you were genuinely connecting with people. Now, this is neither here nor there, but I found it interesting. What he decided to do was he developed a browser plugin. Maybe you've seen this. It was a few years back, and here's what it does. You see up top is the original, and it will tell you that 56 people like this, 13 people shared it, three comments, right? And that's like, yes, are you kidding me? 56 people like this. And what the plugin does is what you see below, which it just says there are people that like this. There were some shares and there are some comments. And that simple shift, I would call this browser plugin a mustard shrub plugin. Because what it does is that it simply helps you to focus yet again, not on what kind of numbers and whether it's awe-inducing and whether it's exciting, how many more people are liking it. And I get it, man, whenever, once in every six months, whenever I throw a photo up there, I don't even hardly look at who says they like it. I just want to see what the number is. And I realize how that begins to shift me away from relationship and just towards, hey, how many people like me? And I want to suggest this morning that not only can that help to reshape our soul, unfortunately, when we begin to do that, but it also, we can easily fall into this trap when it comes to wanting to build for God's kingdom. That easily, whenever we begin to building for God's kingdom, we begin to take the kingdom around us, which is a kingdom, make no mistake about it, that tells you, that focuses so much on what is extraordinary, on what is a big event, and what's going to get a lot of thumbs up, and what's going to begin to trend on Twitter. All of these things to say, this is what's actually important. This is what really matters. And as, uh, as Dan White Jr. has pointed out, the church has oftentimes taken that and consumed it holy, that even when oftentimes they may begin well, it can easily become less about the kingdom work and begin to shift to how is this making us feel? And one of the things that they talk about, whether it's doing a selfie or whether it's posting something, is that things start becoming a performance for others rather than actually being about the kingdom of God. And the Christian subculture, we dive straight into that. I mean, every, every five or six months, I get a magazine. You know what it tells me? It tells me what are the fastest growing churches in America. And I can tell you, who are the charismatic preachers who have the most, uh, most followers or whose podcasts are listened to more than any others? And all of these things are relationships that should be relationships that are beginning to be metrified or monetized. And as soon as that happens, you begin to lose focus of what the kingdom is actually about. Now, we are all guilty of this. I'm going to tell you something. Quite, I, I want you to know the irony was not lost on me when on about Friday it was, I was so frustrated with God. And I said, this weather is ridiculous. Last weekend and this weekend, are you kidding me? Now there's going to be far fewer people here, though my favorites, I want you to know that. <laughs> and I want this sermon to have a huge impact on people. Because it's important for them to know that it's not just about the huge impact that you have. 
And so perhaps it is my fault for the ice and the snow. I mean, <laughs> why? Because how easily I do that as well. And this is nothing against large churches or pastors that have large followings. There are people who are reflecting God's kingdom oftentimes in wonderful ways. And I can tell you there's a lot of really small churches and there's a lot of pastors that don't have any kind of followings who aren't reflecting God's kingdom at all. This is not necessarily about size. It is to say that we as thoughtful Christians, as thoughtful followers of Jesus, cannot, cannot be in such an environment of what matters is what has a big impact or what you can monetize or what you can put numbers to that we forget the the actual part of reflecting God's kingdom. Here's why it's significant. I think that there is one way, the best way, not one way, but the most significant way that we reflect God's kingdom, the most significant way that we build for God's kingdom has nothing to do with those numbers, and it has simply to do with this. Oftentimes, the way in which God's kingdom is built is simply in the relationships that we engage in day to day. Now, I realize that seems fairly anticlimactic, and that you're thinking to yourself, we drove all this way in the ice for Jerry to say the best way to build for God's kingdom is in our day-to-day relationships. But I'm here to tell you that's all I got. Because I think when you look at the life of Jesus, this is what we see. You don't see him riding in on a horse, but a donkey. You don't see him up on a throne, but on a cross. It is incredibly anticlimactic in so many ways. And yet, what did Jesus do? He was continually engaging with people. Twelve disciples. Whenever it was that Jesus wanted to engage in justice, what did he do? Jesus would look at people and he would say, why are you concerned about the two-by-four, the or the toothpick in your neighbor's eye when you have a two by four in your own. Whenever it was that Jesus said, look, the coming kingdom is not going to have suffering, how would he reveal that? By laying his hands on somebody and healing them. Whenever it is that Jesus wanted to say the coming kingdom of God is going to be one of celebration and joy, he revealed that by turning water into wine at a party that he was a part of. Whenever it is that Jesus wanted to say the new kingdom is going to be one full of mercy, He looked into the eyes of the adulterous woman and he said, your sins are forgiven. This is how, more often than not, we build for God's kingdom. And while Jesus got a following, it was always rooted, and I use that word specifically, rooted in relationship. And that's why it seems to me It is so important that we as a church do not focus merely on what is flashy or what is most exciting, which isn't always easy. It's a part of the reason why there there are like things that we talk about that aren't that many things really and that we hit on them again and again and again. 
Right, if I were to ask you probably what are the top three things that we talk about, my guess is two of them, or at least programs that we talk about, two of them you would quickly say. One of them, of course, is home groups. Why am I always talking about home groups? It's just kind of annoying. And here is why. Because home groups are one of the best ways we have of cultivating relationships, which then help us to know one another and to begin shaped more like Christ. I am here to tell you that home groups are not always the most exciting things in the world world. You're not going to start trending because you have, because you're a part of a home group more than likely. It's not going to, you know, make it in any kind of news or anything like this. But what I know is the way that we will be strengthened as people who are reflecting the kingdom of God is not by how full our sanctuary is on Sunday morning, but how nurturing and relationship building our home groups are Sunday evening through Thursday. That this is the way, more often than not, when we will begin to really make more of an impact. It's one of the reasons why we talk about straight up a fair amount. Here we are, we're sitting on the precipice, of course, of Martin Luther King Day. And what we know is in that God's coming kingdom, there is not the racial discrimination and inequality that we so often see today. But what I also believe fairly fully is that a part of the way for us to really move past that is not to have an event, though events are fine and great, there's nothing wrong with them, but more often than not, for us to engage in actual relationships with people who look different than us so that we can begin, hopefully, to finally understand what it looks like to see life through a different lens of a person of a different color. And so one of the things that Straight Up does, because of the fact that it's close enough to us in Northwest Indy, is that it allows us to engage in real relationship and to begin to get to know people who are different than us. And that this is the way so often that we build for God's kingdom through those relationships. And if I were to say, what's one other thing that I oftentimes talk about up on my soapbox? You would say, I mean, if you didn't say this, I would think this must be your very first time here, which of course is learning what it means to love our neighbor. I'm here to tell you that we would be much more exciting of a church if we decided to focus rather than on neighboring on simply how do we reach out to more people all across Indianapolis and we could come up with something super exciting, I feel fairly confident. I want you to know one of the more mundane and lame things to talk about is what it looks like to genuinely engage with your neighborhood and with your neighbors and begin to love them. I know it for two reasons. One is because I see the glazed look in most people's eyes when I talk about it. And secondly, because I know what it's like for me. It is incredibly inefficient. It is incredibly slow. It is incredibly laborious and you're not trending I can assure you because you've loved your neighbor interestingly enough just this week I was having lunch with a ZPCer who said to me you want to know what's kind of happened as I've tried to kind of you know really engage with one of my neighbors and begin to love them and I was like yeah tell me you know and and what you're hoping of course is well you'll never you'll never guess all of a sudden I began to love them they invited me into their home now they're a follower of Jesus they've begun preaching 40,000 people now are following Jesus he started a nonprofit. now there's no more people who are thirsty in Africa all because I love my neighbor What he said was, well, so far, here's what's happened. They invited me to a party at their house in which I know already they are going to try to sell me something. (laughs) Now, look, there's nothing wrong with essential oils. Let me be very clear. I 
I said, well, that sounds a little bit more like a mustard shrub. Let's be completely honest. But what you never know, more often than not, it won't happen in any kind of speed, is that the way that the kingdom of God has been built over the last 2,000 years has been when disciples are willing to not give in to whatever kingdom it is that they are a part of, And have been willing instead to slowly but surely engage in relationships with those around them and with those they meet along the way. And for a people who are willing to engage with others in that way, while it may be slow and laborious and non-awe-inducing and incredibly ordinary and not very exciting at all, What we might be surprised to see are moments when all of a sudden, much to our surprise, we notice that there's a mustard shrub that we had not previously seen. You see, the reality is that the coming kingdom of God is not always flashy, but it is forever. It may not be popular, it may not be powerful, but it will, it will persevere. It may not be overly impactful, but it will be enduring. I don't want us to be the fanciest or even the most exciting of churches. Do I wrestle at times with wanting more people to be in here just for the fact that it just simply means that we have more numbers that we can put in the bulletin, I will be the first to say I wrestle with that. But every time that I do, my hope and my prayer, if you ever see that happening to me or to those around you, is that you will just look at me and just say those two words, mustard shrub as a reminder that God's coming kingdom will not always look exactly as we had anticipated. But make no mistake about it. His kingdom will come on earth as it is in heaven. Amen and amen. Let's pray. God, we have our own image, our own view of what we think your coming kingdom should look like. And we will admit that it is oftentimes dramatically different than what it does. So we pray, Lord, that you would help us to be a people, not who are popular, but a people who persevere. A people, Lord, who focus more on forever than on what is flashy. More on what is timeless truth of your coming again, rather than simply on what is trendy. We are human. So may you give us both the wisdom to see the ways in which our lens is skewed by the kingdoms around us. And then the courage to see the mustard shrub and to know that it is there where you will be found. We pray all these things in your name. Amen and amen.